1: On 3CR Community Radio, 855 kHz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. I'd like to pay my respects to the elders past and present, and to acknowledge that this land was stolen, that sovereignty was never ceded. Each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the many programs that assist in recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Uh, this week I'm talking to Robert, and we're talking about recovering from compulsive gambling with the help of Gamblers Anonymous. So welcome to the show, Robert. Thanks, Bill. Robert, we usually start talking about you know growing up and the things that influenced you. So what what was your early
2: childhood like? Um, my child life was pretty good. Uh, I grew up in a strict religious sort of family. Um My parents both moved over here separately just after World War One to escape after marks of the war. And then they sort of met here and got married and, and, and had a family. My father sort of once he moved over here with his younger brother, he moved into like a shared accommodation sort of thing. And the landlady there was a Christian person. So she influenced or push all the guys there. So yeah, um sort of grew up in a strict religious sort of family, but life seemed pretty good, you know. So as far as I'd like to sit there and say, Well, yeah, gambling for my parents or for my grandparents or stuff maybe might have influenced me, but that wasn't any of that there, you know. So Yeah. You know, it was sort of a happy, yeah, it was a strict a strict, Maybe a more stricter household compared to today's terms, but, you know, overall, it was a pretty safe, stable sort of upbringing. So did you have any siblings, brothers or sisters? Yeah, I've got three brothers and one sister, and I'm sort of the second last. And I guess one part of it I sort of come to learn, my mum and I always had this special bond, and particularly with her. I was always put on a, a pedestal and remarked as the most caring, most sensible sibling or child. Yeah. Sort of thing. So, you know, I do remember times that when, as we all, as kids, you do things wrong, as well as a normal discipline, it was the disappointment that she felt that I should have known better, I should have done better, which I at times transformed. On to myself You know I remember stuff I remember times That I'd done something wrong And even myself I felt that great disappointment And let down in myself That I'd done that So whether that was A set up For later on in life um, You know Yeah Yeah You never know do you Yeah
1: So How did you get on With your brothers and sisters?
2: Yeah no We all got on really good We're all close You know The usual rivalry and, and whatnot you know um, and I had an older brother who, who loved to tease us younger younger ones and wind us up but you know yeah no, there wasn't sort of anything really out of the ordinary brother above me probably had a lesser relationship or closeness with him which later on in life after talking about it, he always felt jealous of me. And that you know, I d well I with my mom and I seemed to have my life on track and together. Um, whereas he didn't and there was always that jealousy, so which he naturally put up a wall, which then sort of was hard to break down. So I sort of wasn't as close to him, but no, nah, overall it was normal, normal family. So Yeah. So what about school? How'd school go? Yeah, school 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 was okay. Um It was, you know, sports and sports and maths I really excelled at. The rest of it, you know, I I had difficulty with and weren't things I enjoyed. Um, You know, and uh, later on in in high school, in year nine and year 10, I missed a lot of school in year nine and year 10 because my dad used to have a bread run, which is, people listening to this don't know. Um, I think Bill Bill might remember it, but yeah. <laughs> Younger people, you probably wouldn't have seen this. Uh, just like you used to be was the milkman, you used to have a breadman who would go to the bakery, pick up, you know, load of van full of bread and then would go to the house to house dropping off the bread and selling bread to people. So and they would have certain areas that they had to cover and Fridays we didn't have supermarkets back then. So it was like a corner store. So People would order double or sometimes triple on a Friday to cover themselves for the weekend. So Fridays were really busy. And when I was in Year 9, Year 10, Mum got sick. And because older, my older brothers and sisters were either working or in high school or doing uni, it sort of fell on me. So every Friday I would have off from school um, and I would help Dad. You know, like we would get up at 3 o'clock in the morning, drive up, late up by 4 o'clock, Return turn back by usually three o'clock in the afternoon and count the money what we had collected and then head off just after dinner to go and collect the money of people who hadn't left it out. So yeah, a big day. Yeah, yeah. and that gave me, a, I guess, a, a taste of of independence. You know, because I was given, I was sort of paid pocket money to help. You know, and yeah. sort of work life and that. You know, if you work. The reward is pay, you know, and and satisfaction and stuff like that. So, hence year ten, I was out the door and off to my first first job, you know. So, what
1: were your sort of aspirations at, at year ten then? Did
2: you have any idea where your life would would go? No, I just wanted to go out and earn more money. That was yeah. it, <laughs> you know. Um, you know, it was sort of ha- had money. So, if had out with school friends, always had a bit more money. So, I'd always you know, shout people and stuff and unfortunately I had older brothers you know, older brothers and the people I tended to hold to hang around with seem to be older people and you know, so, you know, if I wanted the stuff, you know, means to, to earn it, you know, as well as helping dad, I was doing odd jobs on the weekend like mowing lawns and stuff just to earn money. So
1: Yeah. So did that independence lead to anything else? Did you did you move out of home soon?
2: Yeah, um, when I was sort of 18, 19, yeah, I moved out of home and I moved in with a couple other other guys and we shared a three-bedroom flat, so that independence there, so. So did that change your life a lot? Yeah, it it did, because up until that point, as I said, you know, it was a strict religious upbringing, so, you know, went to Sunday school, went to um, catechism, which is sort of like a Christian Boy Scout sort of thing. We had to do two services on a Sunday, you know, uh, church in the morning, church in the afternoon. You know, even if we were out, there was many arguments, you know, we'll be out on family days and Dad will come around us all up and we had to go to church, you know. So moving into that was my step away from from. Religion and stuff, and I'm not trying to make this about religion. Uh, it's just my my backstories. Yeah. So yeah, was that real? I guess was doing that was that then real rebellion? Um, you know, against my upbringing and and everything else. So. So what what did that rebellion look like? Ah, uh, well, it was out drinking, out partying, you know, um, experimenting, you know, experimenting drugs and. Binge, binge alcohol and, you know, weekends was just concert party, drinking, you know. That eventually led me to to get a part-time job up in Kings Cross in the car park. You know, it was a vacant block of land, which was owned by someone, so we would park cars and we'd get paid for it. That eventually led to helping out in an illegal casino or across the road and then basically being a driver for one of the owners from, from a few of the Nightclubs in the Kings Cross, so, and that was probably, as I said before, that was probably my introduction into gambling. Was assisting in a illegal casino and and seeing huge amounts of money passing and being passed back and handed the keys to you know exotic cars and pulling garbage bags of money out of the boot <laughs> <laughs> across to the punter, you know, so. As well as being you know they won, we were highly tipped, if we were lost, well, we caught the brand of it, so to speak, you know, so yeah, some some of the
1: stories that sound like they're coming out today about illicit gambling funds yeah, yeah. uh so what sort of gambling uh
2: did you start with? well, for me, personally it was just um poker machines, you know, I'd seen people and had seen like the TIP and horse raiding over years yeah. and always thought, you know, people who did that were, were mugs, you know, because, um, you know, horses could be rigged, they could be held back, they could be fed something, could be injected with something. So the outcome could be controlled, you know. So, I, I you know, I thought myself, well, I'm not that sure to get off with that, you know, and, you know, Occasionally, I think like everyone, occasionally started off social with friends and family. You know, you would go out to a club somewhere and growing up in Sydney, you know, you always had these sporting clubs and, and stuff around and, and RSL clubs and stuff like that, which always offered a cheap meal in lieu of that you would spend the money elsewhere, you know. Yeah. So, and that sort of started, started off social. And then I think for me, the real big one was, i moved into working in, in, in a hotel and being a night manager in a hotel. And then one night we went off to one of these clubs, um, to the nightclub. You know, had been drinking and dancing and everything and had to go home because I was due to open the next day. Um, and as I was leaving, I had a pocket full of change. So I thought I'd just get rid of this, just shoved it in a, in a poker machine, pushed a button and walked off. And then next thing you know, people were tapping me on the shoulder and calling me back because I'd won the jackpot, you know. So, which at that time didn't mean anything to me because, yeah, I wasn't sober. So, um, but the next morning when I was looking, going through my jeans, I discovered the, the, the little piece of paper they, that they give you with the amount on it that, that I'd won the jackpot. And I was like, wow, how easy is this? I didn't even try, you know. So, and I think that was the start of the initial attraction, addiction to it.
1: So, I guess the the progress in gambling is, in particularly pokies, is is reasonably quick. So, was it quick, fast for you?
2: Yeah, no, it was. You know, like after that first win, um, I don't think it was the next day after because I had to work, um, but I think it was the second day after. I was back there, back to the same machine trying to to recreate that that scenario from the two nights before and yeah had handed back the entire jackpot that I was given plus plus you know a huge chunk of my own money you know so yeah it's pretty
1: tragic isn't it that
2: yeah, it is, it is. Uh yeah. So and that hence that started that cycle of chasing, chasing the last win, you know, and um along along the journey there had been times where I, I did win, but it just amount to wanting to win more, you know, and and chasing chasing that next win, you know, that next big win. So
1: yeah, people often talk
2: about chasing their losses as well, trying to recover. So was that mm. something you did? Oh, yeah, no, no, definitely. You know, I mean, during my game when I missed a lot of family functions and that because my life come, became consumed around chasing that last loss, that that next big win that, you know, my luck was going to change, was going to fix everything back, was going to undo everything I had done, you know, was going to undo and fix up and recover all those years of of losing and gambling, you know. So, and that sort of became the whole focus, you know, towards the end. It wasn't because I enjoyed it um, or it gave me any sort of thrill because it didn't. It was just that desperation, you know. That next big win was going to fix all my problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Yes, I
1: think that's pretty common, yeah. Yeah. Okay, listen, we might take a short break there. Our first song today is called Beautiful Morning by Andrea Kerwin, and it's courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project.
0: Beautiful morning Lying here next to you I can't believe All my dreams have come true, I hope you Join me, Aya cry with Ubuntu voices, Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. on 3CR. Ubuntu is a Zulu word, meaning I am here because you are. Ubuntu celebrates the positive contribution African Australians make to our communities in music, academia, the arts, and everything in between. Come with me on a journey. None Ubuntu voices every Wednesday at 8 30 p.m. None, are free.
3: none of us are free, one of us is cheap, none of us are free.
4: Black Spark is an independent, volunteer-run bookshop, gallery, music and community space in Northcote, Naam, dedicated to creativity, learning and liberation.
1: Black Spark is a space for the entire community, free of charge, hosting art, music and literary events.
4: To keep Black Spark free, open and accessible to everybody, we need your help.
0: We are calling for your support for our rent fundraiser to keep our doors open into the coming years.
4: With your support, we can continue to host book and exhibition launches, art auctions, fundraisers, music gigs, and facilitate opportunities and growth for emerging artists and grassroots communities.
1: For more information, visit Keep Black Spark Alive on chuffed.com or check out Black Spark on all the socials.
3: Keep Black Spark alive.
0: A 3CR supporter.
1: Welcome back. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial, and 3CR on digital radio. If you'd like to listen to one of our many podcasts, uh, you can find them on your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free and check out our website. You can also contact us via phone, email, or Twitter. Today I'm talking with Robert and we're talking about compulsive gambling and his recovery through Gamblers Anonymous. Um, so, Robert, before the break, we were talking about that. Chasing your, chasing your losses, I guess, um, to, to get back to that point where you'd um, break even and, and make a profit. So um, how did things progress, you know, from your, say, early 20s? How did your gambling progress and what impact did it have on your, you know, your
2: family, your work, uh, your relationships and things? Yeah, it progressed. It deteriorated, probably some more a better word for it, um, pretty quickly. Because, um, like I said before, I was chasing that loss. And that became you know, probably one of a major priority in my life, you know, of of chasing the next big win. So, you know, my whole day and my whole thought process and, and the stuff was surrounded gambling, you know. Um, if I wasn't gambling, it was the thoughts of gambling. Often I had lost it, you know, had lost all my money. So then it was the thought of, around who could I borrow money off, or where could I get money from?" Um, you know, which led to, you know, ringing up friends, family, you know, asking for a loan to borrow money, you know, taking things down to cash converters or a hock shop to either get a loan on or to sell to get money from, uh, you know, which then led into lies as to why I was broke, you know, you know, from losing my losing my wallet to. You know, work had just changed over to a new pay system and they had stuffed up and all those sorts of things. And, you know, even, even in that, you know, borrowing money, I remember once I had to get my car registered and the tyres on my car were bought. So, um, I had lost my money. So I'd asked, asked my mum for a loan to pay for the, for my my tyres and registration. And I lied about the amount I needed. And even in then, I went and gambled before I even paid those sort of things. And I needed my car for work, get to work, you know. So, I mean, lucky enough, I'm lucky enough, uh, I had a small win and that time I walked out and paid what I had to pay. But then the next night I was back there again trying to win it. Um, and often, as I say in the meetings, I, I held a value over money that If it was a necessity, it was okay. If it was a luxury, there was guilt attached to it. So quite often, you know, like paying a, paying a registration and paying with the ties, even though it was a necess- necessity, I felt guilt over it, so I would go to gamble to win that money back, so to speak, you know. As I often said... I wore a pair of jeans for 18 years because they weren't they weren't torn and they still fitted me, so why did I new, need a new pair? You know, it's that justification and um, that came into it with my gambling because at the end of the day, I was saving money to go and, go and gamble with and that was the whole point, you know. So, so did you typically gamble your pay packet each week? Yeah.
1: So what's it like to have gambled – all your money and not get some more for a couple of weeks or a week.
2: Yeah, it was was the most worst feeling I've ever felt, you know, living from paycheck to paycheck, living in that constant fear and anxiety, you know, as well as guilt and shame, is not knowing what to do or, or how I was going to you know, get to work the next day, how I was going to pay for things, you know, how I was going to pay for the ball, petrol in my car, you know. Buy lunch, you know. Um, you know, as was a, a constant line to to friends and family when I was invited out because I was broke and always coming up with excuses not to do it, you know, because that was the scenario. I couldn't afford it, you know. Um, and on the rare occasion, if I did do it, it was like, no, no, I don't want to get into shouts because, yeah. you know, I'd found a handful of coins somewhere that I figured, yeah, that buys me free beers, that's enough, you know, I'll get through the night. You know, I'll be able to cover again that I was broke, you know. Yeah. Um, so it's something there that, I, that uh, drives me, which is probably more to talk back in, in a little bit further on, but, you know, not to not to go back to it, you know. So because it was that constant look, looking over your shoulder, looking at the phone, reading who, who it was, you know, it was someone I owed money to or or family or friends, you know, it was like, yeah, I wouldn't answer it, you know, because I would have to fess up or I was afraid I would have to fess up to something, you know. So, you know, I was afraid that, you know, again, they would ask how I was and I would have to lie and say, I'm okay, you know. Yeah. So I avoided that as much as I could. So did your family have any idea that you were gambling? They, they had a sense of it, but once I fessed up and, and told them about it, uh, I think the shock to them was to how bad it was and, and, you know, how much debt I had gotten into and, and the sort of impact in me personally that was there. Like they noticed it because they, I remember mum saying to me, she noticed the change in me and it wasn't a positive change. It was a negative, you know, I was becoming withdrawn. I stopped caring about people, you know, I was distant, you know, like she said, even at functions, it looks like you're off somewhere else. And then in hindsight, I was, I was wanting to, to bolt and go and gamble, you know, so they saw had an idea, but not how severe it had become.
1: Yep. So what about work? Did it impact your work?
2: Uh, work did. It, um, like I said, I had worked You know, at one stage I had gotten into night managing and had stolen from work. Um, I mean, I justified it to myself because as a manager we had a slush fund. You know, it was money that you could go and buy drinks to to build a rapport with the patrons, uh, which I then used to go and gamble with once I gambled all my money. You know, so and justified it in my head that hey. It was there for me to buy drinks with, it was there for me to use how I felt fit. Yeah. Which, you know, wasn't the case at all. You know, it was there in good faith that you would use it as a tool to promote the hotel, not for my own personal use, you know. So
1: So did work find out about
2: it? Yeah. Yeah, they found out about it. So um which yeah, it was straight away it was like, Well, you're you know we can't trust you and there's no trust there. So I've broken that trust with them. So I lost a job. Um, they were also part of a big organisation that owned a lot of hotels around Sydney in, in the area. So my name was put up, you know. So a couple of times I went and went to try and get another job somewhere else. And they're like, oh, okay, that's yeah, you. Yeah, no, we're not hiring you, you know, yeah, sort of thing. So it sort of... Yeah, cost me that sort of line of work, you know. So
1: So how did that impact you? Did you find another job somewhere else?
2: Yeah. Yeah, well I had done it before that I'd done uh a, a trade as a baller maker, so and I was in that and really the hotel game was just a break from that. So yeah, I just went sort of back to my my trade, um, you know, and that was sort of it. Um it sort of probably made it a little bit easier to sort of hide because you know I wasn't using I wasn't didn't have access to money at at work or anything like that. Um, it was just a normal wage. But yeah, I, I do remember you know a few of the bosses I sort of went through you know pulling me up and questioning me because a few times I sort of had spent my money my wage for that week. So I'd approach you know, on the Thursday night so I'd approach my boss on the Friday asking for a loan from the, the next week's wage to get me through, you know. So you know, and I was like, Well, hang on, you just got paid last night, you know. What's going on? So which the lies the lies and the seat come in again. I made up some story that, you know, as to why it why it was you know, was what it was and yeah. Did they accept those? Yeah. Yes. I think it was easier to accept it rather than being challenged to what wasn't the reason, you know.
1: Yeah.
2: And I, and I think the same with, with, with the family. You know, they understood it, but challenging me on it then meant having to deal with something them themselves that maybe they didn't feel they could handle or knew how to handle.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, so, you know, and I'm not knocking my family for it. Um, but I think that is the, the, the real sort of thing behind it, you know, It's like how do you help someone? How do you deal with that, you know? So, yeah. So what about friendships and relationships?
1: How did it affect those?
2: Yeah, it, it affected those because, like I said, a lot of times I would make up excuses not to go to things or if I did, it was just on my own. Um, you know, quite often I would sick uh, loans from friends you know and it you know, a few of them commented that you know really the only time i contacted them was when i was trying to borrow money from them sort of thing you know um it affected relationships because you know needed that time money resources was going into game would say you know if i met a girl i liked uh it was hard to go out on dates and stuff like that because i was broke you know and Um, I think to a certain degree in that gambling, I became accustomed to misery, you know, and that that then became my norm, which then made me feel comfortable. So if anything good in my life, including relationships, come along, that fear that that was going to come crashing down uh, scared me. So I would do it on my own terms. You know, I would do something to sabotage the relationships, sabotage the friendships, I kept people at a distance that I could handle, that I felt comfortable, and if it ever came to a point that that was encroached on that, well, I sabotaged it, you know.
1: So did you have any problems with accommodation and, you know, having a place to live?
2: No, nah, no, nah, like, you know, a lot of them were sort of just managed to, to sort of get through, you know, and there was always had a car. So there was always a car, which in a. You know, a couple of occasions in between, you know, proper accommodation became, you know, my home, so to speak. So, but, you know, I guess, you know, around me there was all, my have all saying bad about family and friends, but they weren't. They were all loving and caring family. So that was always that to fall on. And I guess that was something I took for granted that, you know, I could do that, you know. That I had people that wouldn't let me sleep on the street, so to speak, you know. So, but you know, that only goes and lasts for so far, you know. So,
1: yeah. So, what caused you to um,
2: to seek help? Well, uh, initially it was mum and the family, and that was initially to shut that noise, you know, or to keep keep them quiet, keep them happy. But, of course, because I wasn't in it for myself, I struggled for two years in that, in that it was up and down. I'll get brief periods of abstinence. But because I hadn't taken up on myself and hadn't really accepted that first step and acknowledged that I had a problem with gambling, it was always brief and it was always up and down. And then it eventually just got to a point I was just uh, tired of being tired, you know, tired of the lying, the cheating, being broke, you know, looking over my shoulder constantly, trying to remember the lies and who I'd lied to and coming up with new ones on the the back of it, you know. I was just tired of all the the toxic, negative stuff that can come with gambling once you become a compulsive gambler, you know. Um, And, yeah, that was, you know, I masked and covered it I thought I masked and covered it for years, and eventually you just get tired of that, that masking oh, I got tired of that masking, you know. Yeah. Um, so, and I know when, when I did eventually sit down with my parents and, and family and told them about it, that huge relief that I felt, you know, when, when I sort of told them what had been going on and, you know, how bad my situation had become. Um, you know, that drowning feeling, cause, you know, for, for a majority of my gambling period, which was a majority of my young adult life, I always thought there was someone with their foot, foot on my head shoving me under the water, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and and that hopelessness of how do you get out of this, you know? What do I do, you know? How do I stop? Like, I mean, fa- friends and family, seeking friends and help for friends and family was, you know, well, you just manage or, or you stop. It was like, yeah. Like, that thought hasn't crossed my mind a million times, <laughs> you know. And it, it, that's what it was, you know. So yeah, it was just that, that void and that, that constant drowning sort of feeling, that hopelessness, you know, mm. Um, which then being, you know, and the, the other part, um, gambling help, was running away from that, not having to deal with it. You know, if it became too much, you know, we'll go and gamble. You know, hide from it, not deal with it, you know. So, yeah. Okay. Uh,
1: Well, so we might take another short break there.
2: Yep. Our second song today
1: is called Lately, and it's by Cassidy Ray, again, courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project.
4: What's it meant to fill that hole in my heart? You come round talking about us, babe, like we never broke apart. You say you've been thinking about the times when we were together. can mm-hmm. can't help that sinking feeling. You've been missing that promise of forever. Mm-hmm. you say I've been thinking You'll be crying in my arms You'll be down begging on your knees, baby Using all your charm That I fell in love with The first time I met
0: listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast.
1: Uh, welcome back. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR Digital Radio. Live streaming on 3cr.org.au/forward/slash/streaming. Today I'm talking with Robert, and we're talking about compulsive gambling and his recovery through Gamblers Anonymous. So Robert, before the break, we were talking about you know being sick and tired of being sick and tired of gambling, and your your life as a gambler. So how did you get help? What was the thing that
2: helped you the most? Um. So initially, it was to to keep the family quiet. So mum had spoken to to the minister and the minister through their contacts I guess had heard about Gamblers Anonymous and, and AA and, and NA and all those associations. So um you know they said to him, well we've looked it up and there's gonna be a meeting here maybe suggest him to go and see them and see if he could get help as well as counselling, you know. So 'cause during our talk cause of, with, with the Minister sort of expressed the built-up baggage over the years of my life um, as to being part of the reason of seeking gambling to mask that. So, you know, I remember walking into my first meeting, you know, in my 30s, it was that stage, single, or oh, late 20s, single, you know, and I walked in a room full of married people who not only... Compulsive gamblers, but were alcoholics and stuff like that, you know, and sitting there and listening to them, and the majority of them had lost, you know, if not one marriage, at least a few marriages for, for the gambling and drinking, and you know, lost houses and all that sort of thing, so initially it didn't, you know, I looked at it and was like, what am I doing here? I'm not, you know, no, that um, applies to me, you know, Yeah. so to speak, so uh I sort of left and then it yeah, didn't really go back, you know, 'cause it's sort of like, yeah. You know, so but, you know, I would leave home if I was home, because um, 'cause I'd move back in as part of it I'd move back in, in home to try and get back on my feet as well. So I would leave home on the pretense that I was going to a meeting, you know. So but eventually like as I mentioned before, I got sick or tired of sick or tired of tired and I think that initial exposure to GA, even though I didn't realise it then, helped me later on to say, well, okay, then maybe I need to give that a second chance. You know, I went to one meeting and wrote it off, you know. So it was like, okay, went to that same meeting and um, one of the guys there spoke to me afterwards. And I sort of expressed that, you know, I didn't find the meeting that helpful to me because I was in the situation and it was a device he gave me was probably one of the best advice I've got. He's like, go to another meeting, mm. you know. So the, I think the following night I went to to a separate, different, like a different meeting in, in, a, in another town or another suburb and felt really at home really got a lot out of that meeting, felt that someone for that meeting had been walking behind me and taking notes of my life story because everything that we read or was said was me, you know. And I think that was the first breakthrough that I got that, you know, I wasn't alone, that I wasn't the only person with 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 the addiction and that finally there were people, people I was talking to and listening to who were the same as me who could understand me and I could understand them. Yeah. Um, Because as I sort of mentioned before, you know, family just said, well, just set a limit, just stop. And I was like, oh, yeah, why don't I think of that? And, you know, to people without an addiction, that is a hard thing to grasp as to why can't a a compulsive person, whether it's uh, alcohol, drugs, you know, gambling, food, whatever it is, Why can't they control? Why can't they just stop? And it's that invisible line you cross that it then makes you feel helpless and hopeless into being able to do that, you know? So, um, and just, yeah, just through the the strength. I remember sharing on my first meeting in tears because I was that desperate and that sick of it and just begging them to tell me, begging them to give me that magic pill or whatever it was that was going to help me stop gambling. And, and you know, and, and even saying, "If you need me to cut off my right arm, I'll cut off my right arm," you know, because that's where I was at my stage of gambling and wanting to stop gambling, you know. Mm. So, how how did your life change
1: once you started going to meetings?
2: Well, once I started going to meetings, it changed hugely. Um, that hopelessness and that helplessness soon disappeared because I gained strength and hope and inspiration from other members in that meeting and listening to other people tell their stories and share the stories of their life and how they were in recovery, uh, dealing with life, dealing with loss issues, you know, what they tried to stay off the punt, what they were doing off the punt, you know, so, and accepting that, you know, I was a compulsive gambler and it was out of control and I needed to, you know, for that to change, I needed to change something, you know, and, That had to be my life, you know. Um, Initially, it was just stopping gambling, but then it had to be that changes in my life um, to help it stick, you know, and just getting help from them. Seeing, you know, walking in a room, I mean, you sort of mentioned it that, you know, periods of non-gambling. I never had periods of non-gambling by choice, you know. Um, I would have two weeks that I didn't gamble, but that was because I was broke for that week, and then that second week... I was repaying people the money I owed. So that wasn't my choice, you know. The third week I was back out and repeating the cycle. But through the GA program and looking at it, you know, and seeing people, you know, meeting people with 8, 10, 15, 20 years abstinence, which blew my mind, to celebrating 30 days off the punt. And I remember it instinctively because it it was – you know, it, it was amazement to me that it could be done, firstly, and secondly, that I'd done it through hard work. It wasn't that bailout or that genie rub or whatever it was and all of a sudden life was going to become rosy. Mm. It taught me that It's going to take effort and hard work, you know. So, you know, um, pretty quickly the, the finances got sorted out because even though that, that was my whole focus, that was the easiest thing to fix the hardest thing was dealing with, was letting go of the baggage, you know, and learning to deal with life and life's problems, you know, in a more, more capable, more responsible, more mature way, you know, so the finance and that, that worthless, uh, feeling that I carry around for a, a huge part of my life soon disappeared, that I learned I was worth something and that I was lovable and I could love. And, I was entitled to good things in my life and that wasn't going to necessarily just disappear because of what happened in previous circumstances and stuff. So, um, you know, so that's sort of, yeah, you know, life became a whole of a lot better, you know. The Anxiety, fear, you know, depression soon, soon disappeared, you know. And I wouldn't say I went back to the Rob, before gambling, because I don't think I, I have. I think I've gone to, you know, a different Rob again, but it's a more positive, uh, caring, capable person. So,
1: mm. a lot of gamblers that I talk to talk about the the benefits of of not gambling, and they're sort of obvious things to most people. And that is, you know, being able to have a holiday, mm. you know, being able to buy things that you want. Um, so, how's it changed your life like that?
2: Yeah. Um- it 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 it's changed that in that part, but uh, and and the money side of it, yeah, it's, it's being able to pay your bills without stressing over it, you know. Um, I've got to go to a wedding in six weeks time for my nephew, you know, which, you know, so um, it's like yeah, you know, without a thought, I said yep, yeah, I'll come to it, you know. It, it was being held at a place, and everyone was staying at this place, so I was like, yeah, contacted the place booked a room for myself, you know, um, booked a, the airfare, you know, ducked out this morning before this to, to organise the suit, you know, and booked the, the, the tickets and airline and, you know, so that's all done and doing that without the stress and, and the fact that I'm doing that's been done six weeks in advance, you know, if anything, in the past, it'll be a mad scramble. If we went on holidays, it was, a you know, it would have been a mad scramble as to where I could get money from to pay those sorts of things. So not having that stress and and being able just to do that, to going out with friends and, you know, paying for their coffee or, you know, a few weeks back, I went and had friends with dinner and we we're supposed to have gone out, but that changed and we got takeaway. But I thought it's paid for it, so don't worry about it, you know. Mm. And, it, and again, it wasn't from a, again, with point of perspective of, been a big shot it was just I wanted to do that as a caring friend as, as a nice gesture to them you know and it's like don't make any fuss about it, just accept it and let's move on you know you know I wasn't there to get a pat on the back it was just something I felt I wanted to do and you know coming from a person who didn't give a stuff about anyone through gambling and that was what the gambling drove me to is you know a, you know the difference today that Instead of renting up people and borrowing money, if someone needs money, I'll borrow it. If I walk past a, a homeless person on the street, it's without a thought dropping money in or going to buy him a sandwich and a cup of coffee, you know. Mm. Um, you know, and just being able to to do that, and you know, slowly that that justification over money is disappearing as well, you know. That's where it's at, so, um, you know, and being an honest person that I could look at myself in the mirror, you know, what I say to people, I can't make them believe me or trust in me. That is only something I could show, but I know looking in the mirror that in myself I am that trusting, caring person and I am being honest and upfront and that's all that matters. You know, for a big part of my life I felt I had to win win the love of people, so it was always that pleasing of people. Now you either take me how, how I am or you don't, and that's your problem, not mine. It's not for me to try and and influence that. You know, if you either like me for who I am or, or you don't, you know, and I'm quite happy with that, you know. So,
1: so what about your relationship with your family?
2: How's that improved? Yeah, that's improved that, you know, we're sort of more in contact and, and – you know, that fear of me using them and we just calling them up to borrow money off them is gone. That trust has finally, has finally come back. You know, um, it's still a bit odd because they're not into it. So I still get from time to time because, you know, I'm still involved with GA. Um, you know, I, this round, I'm 17 years off the punt. Um, I was a secretary for a GA, um, meeting for 15 years. So, you know, at time to time it was like I so said, well, I've got to go or, or I've got to go to my meeting. I still get asked, you still going to that, you know, sort yeah. of thing, you know. Um, and it was like, yeah, I gave that because, A, I still need it and, B, it's me giving back to the fellowship, me being that inspiration to to other people, you know, as as it was for me when I walked in the room, um, that looking at me on those I'm nothing special, you know. I'm not highly educated or, all that sort of stuff. I'm just the, the average person and who's learnt through the program to stay off the punt, you know, not punt for, not bet for today, you know. Yeah. yeah. So can I ask,
1: has it improved your relationships generally with people?
2: Yeah, yeah, it has. Um, it, you know, I, I used to judge people. I used to think drug addicts were the scum of the earth. You know, how could you? attack and robbing the little old lady or break into someone's house or something like that, meanwhile justify my own actions you know, sort of realising that we're all just here trying to survive, you know, and trying to get through life and what appears on the surface might not be what that person is underneath, you know, and sort of Giving people people the benefit of the doubt and digging deeper, you know, under the under the, the mask and the, the facades that we all we all wear, you know, mm. from time to time, you know, and not being judgmental and you know being honest and caring more caring when in relationships that uh, I have, you know. So yeah, that's good. Um,
1: well, I think that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Robert for sharing his gambling recovery story with us and talking about how Gamblers Anonymous has helped him. Thanks, Robert. Thanks, Bill. If anybody would like to find out more about Gamblers Anonymous, uh, you can phone them at Victoria on 03 9696 6108 or you can go online at gaustralia.org.au uh, for more information on recovery from compulsive gambling. Coming up next, we have Bell and Wah, The Spirit of War, hosted by Uncle tell Jim Choco Edwards. Join Uncle Choco in The Spirit of War on a journey of belonging and movement through singalongs lawns and yarns. I hope you'll be able to listen again next week when we'll be talking about recovery from drugs, alcohol, food and gambling and for families and friends of addicts and gamblers. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. And to take us out, we have a song called My Body is an Ecosystem by Jess Locke. And all songs today were courtesy of the Australian Music Radio Airplay Project. Enjoy. In October, VACA is hosting a series of rainbow yarning workshops for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. The workshops will include guest speakers presenting on a range of topics for LGBTIQA communities and support services. To take part, visit the Victorian
2: Aboriginal Child Care Agency's Facebook page to register. The Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency is a 3CR supporter. <laughs>